0: This morning we'll be um, looking at the um, topic of faith from 1 Peter chapter 1. But before we turn to God's Word, let's read from our Heidelberg Catechism from Lord's Day 7. Uh, I have it on page 875. And I'll just be reading the first... Three questions, question 20, 21, and 22 for us. Are all people then saved through Christ just as they were lost through Adam? No, only those are saved who through faith are grafted into Christ and accept his benefits. What is true faith? True faith is not only a sure knowledge By which I hold as true all that God has revealed to us in His Word, it is also a wholehearted trust, which the Holy Spirit works in me by the Gospel, that God has freely granted not only to others, but to me also forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. These gifts are purely of grace only because of Christ's merit. What then must a Christian believe? all that is promised to us in the gospel a summary of which is taught us which is taught us in the articles of our catholic and undoubted christian faith and the, of course the word catholic is a uh, a word which means universal as i think we understand let's turn to god's word to first of all the book of james the letter epistle of james chapter 1 We'll read verses one through fifteen, and then after that, we'll be turning a few pages back to, sorry, a few a few pages forward to First Peter one, <clears throat> James chapter one, beginning at verse one through fifteen. Let's give our careful attention to God's holy word. James, a bond of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers Then it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Now we'll turn over to 1 Peter chapter 1, just a few pages further. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 9. Our text is verses 6 through 9. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Christ Jesus from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Here's our text. In this you greatly rejoice though now for a little while if need be you have been grieved by various trials that the genuineness genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire may be found to praise honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ whom having not seen you love Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So far we will read in God's word. Uh, our sermon this morning was prepared by Pastor Marty Vogel, a relative of mine. Uh, the sermon title is Genuine Faith. And there'll be three questions that we'll be asking as our headings this morning. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Lena Sendal Sendal was the daughter of a Swedish pastor born on October 3, 1832. Lena was a frail girl who usually preferred to spend her time in her father's study rather than join her friends in play. She began to develop a talent for writing hymns. When Lena was 26 years old, she accompanied her father on a journey to Gothenburg. But tragedy occurred before the destination was reached. When the ship gave a sudden lurch, Lena's father fell overboard and drowned before the eyes of his devoted daughter. She was terribly grieved by the sudden loss. But by the grace of God, she wrote the hymn that we sang a moment ago. Day by day, and with each passing moment, strength I find to meet my trials here. Trusting in my Father's wise bestowment, I've no cause for worry or for fear. He whose heart is kind beyond all measure, gives unto each day what he deems best, Lovingly, it's part of pain and pleasure, mingling toil with peace and rest. Many of you at one time or another have experienced difficult trials. Some are public, some are private. We know both from experience and from the scriptures that believers are not exempt from hardship. In our text for this afternoon, Peter speaks plainly of that. As Christians, we should not be surprised if we pass through trials. How do we face them? We face them by faith in the one who saved us. We are saved by faith and we persevere through life by faith. From 1 Peter 1, verses 6 through 9, also in connection with Lord's Day 7, we will consider three questions regarding genuine faith. Number one, What is it? Number two, how is it tested? And number three, why is it tested? First of all, what is genuine faith? In a sermon on justification, J.C. Ryle explained the nature of saving faith in a helpful way. He said this, Saving faith is the hand of the soul. The sinner is like a drowning man at the point of sinking. He sees the Lord Jesus holding out help to him. He grasps it and is saved. This is faith. Saving faith is the eye of the soul. The sinner is like the Israelite, bitten by the fiery serpent in the wilderness and at the point of death. The Lord Jesus Christ is offered to him as the brazen serpent set up for his cure. He looks and is healed. This is faith. Saving faith is the mouth of the soul. The sinner is starving for lack of food and sick of a severe disease. The Lord Jesus Christ is set before him as the bread of life and the universal medicine. He receives it and is made well and strong. This is faith. Saving faith is the foot of the soul. The sinner is pursued by a deadly enemy and is in fear of being overtaken. The Lord Jesus Christ is put before him as a strong tower the hiding place, and the refuge. He runs into it and is safe. This is faith. End of quote. Saving faith is then the hand, eye, mouth, and foot of the soul. Brothers and sisters, genuine faith is a fruit of regeneration. In verse 3b, Peter says, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be what? Born again. That is regeneration. Regeneration is the theological term used to describe rebirth. Regeneration is the act of God, the Holy Spirit, by which He makes the spiritually dead sinner alive. It marks the beginning of new life in a radically renewed person. Regeneration is not the fruit of faith. Faith is the fruit of regeneration. In order to possess genuine faith, you must be born again. The Holy Spirit must recreate your heart and bring you from spiritual death to spiritual life. The Apostle Peter celebrated that great work. Have a look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. Having been born again, the recipients of this letter trusted God and turned to Christ as Lord and Savior. They believed that he is entirely trustworthy. God granted them the gift of faith. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which we have in our hymn book if you want to look it up later, the Westminster Shorter Catechism says, Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation, as he is offered to us in the gospel. When defining faith, the Heidelberg Catechism emphasizes two things. True faith includes sure knowledge and wholehearted trust. It includes both the head and the heart. With respect to the head, genuine faith accepts as true all that God has revealed to us in his word, We fully accept what the Bible says about God and the gospel of Christ. Knowledge of the word is very important. Our catechism reminds us that a good summary of the essentials of the faith is found in the Apostles' Creed, which it goes on to develop in the future Lord's Days. The Apostles' Creed is certainly not exhaustive, but it provides a helpful starting point for what a Christian must believe. And then, with respect to the heart, true faith is confident in the merits of Christ, or what Christ has done. The believer knows that he cannot earn his own way back to God through obedience, but through the perfect and complete work of Christ, he is granted forgiveness of sins, eternal righteousness, and salvation. So true faith includes both knowledge and wholehearted trust. Knowledge alone is not enough. Knowing the facts of the Bible, sound doctrine, and the articles of the Apostles' Creed are insufficient. Even the demons know the facts of the Bible and the articles of the Creed, but their knowledge does not profit them whatsoever. It does not save. We need more than an intellectual assent of a set of doctrines. True faith encompasses both the head and the heart, knowing and trusting. Faith hears the truth of the gospel, believes it, and acts upon it. Faith is the response of the mind and heart to the Savior revealed in Scripture. One contemporary theologian said this, Faith is personal, believing that God loves me that Jesus died for me. Faith trusts that God did not send his son merely to do something wonderful for people out there in the world. He sent his son to live and die in my place. Salvation is more than a concept, it's a conviction. True faith believes I am forgiven, I am right with God, and I will live forever. End quote. So the question is, do you believe that? Congregation, genuine trust in Christ is not the result of superior intellect. Our catechism accurately says that the Holy Spirit works it in me by the gospel. It is the work of the Holy Spirit in us through the hearing of the gospel, and that's why preaching and witnessing are so vital. They are the means that God uses to create faith in sinners. lord's day 7 asks the question are all people saved through christ just as they were lost through adam the answer that we clearly find in the scripture is no only those are saved who through true faith are grafted into christ and accept all his benefits the fall of humanity was universal but salvation is not universal Only those who hear the gospel, receive the gift of faith, and have their hearts opened by the Holy Spirit can be saved. Through faith we are joined to Christ, grafted into him, and enjoy all the wonderful benefits of the cross. But dear friends, while there are tremendous blessings for those who are grafted into Christ through faith, there are also times... When our faith is sorely tested, which brings us to our second question, how is it tested? Point number two, how is it tested? In verses three through five, Peter encouraged his readers to praise God for the glorious inheritance awaiting them. Those who are born again through the Father's abundant mercy have a tremendous future. However, in our text, verses 6 through 9, you might say Peter brings us back down to earthly realities. He brings us back to the present circumstances, to the cold, hard experiences of life. He gives us a very realistic picture at the end of verse 6 when he says, You have been grieved. The Christian life is not all roses. In the words of the hymn writer, we shouldn't expect to be carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease. Sometimes Christians grieve, suffer, and cry. Sometimes we feel torn apart. You know this in your own experience. You get phone calls that leave you trembling with sorrow, you get doctor's reports that leave you numb. You see and hear wicked things in our society that break your heart. Trials are grievous. Verse 6 also has been translated, You have been distressed by various trials. In this fallen world, there are numerous unexpected, unwanted, uninvited challenges. But congregation, we want to notice something from our text. Even though trials are difficult and grievous... They need not rob you of true joy. The recipients of this letter were experiencing hardships. They were grieved. And yet, what does Peter say about them? Have they lost their faith and given up on Christianity? That temptation is always there, isn't it? A new convert might be tempted to say, I've had it. I'm going back to my old ways. Christianity has made my life more complicated. But was that the attitude of those whom Paul, to whom Paul, Peter was writing? Sorry, Not at all. Peter says that despite their difficulties, they were rejoicing. Look with me, please, at the beginning of verse 6. In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while... If necessary, you have been grieved. The word that is translated rejoice is used in the New Testament for a great or lively joy. It describes a person who is happy in a deep spiritual sense, as opposed to a temporary or circumstantial sense. Well, what are they rejoicing in? What does the word this of verse 6 refer to? It points us back to verses 3 through 5. They are rejoicing in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. They are rejoicing in his great mercy. They are rejoicing in their new birth. They are rejoicing in their risen Savior. They are rejoicing in their inheritance. They are rejoicing in the salvation that will be revealed in the last day. In this, you greatly rejoice. Although their trials were difficult... They did not kill their joy. Congregation, in the eyes of the world, verse 6 may seem like a contradiction or an absurdity. And even for the Christian, it is hard to grasp. How can you be grieving and at the same time be rejoicing? While the Christian life may seem like a contradiction, Scripture teaches that joy and grief can coexist in the life of the believer. Consider some of the people of faith in Scripture who experienced grief and joy simultaneously. For example, the prophet Jeremiah, because of his faithfulness to God, lived a very difficult life. No one could have had a more thankless task than he. We can hardly fathom the depths of sorrow into which Jeremiah was plunged. He wanted to dissolve into tears because of the doom of Judah. But even though his ministry was largely rejected, and he was thrown in prison, and then into a dungeon with no water, only mire, yet in the midst of his grief, we hear him praising the Lord. He said, "...through the Lord's mercies we are not consumed, because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore I hope in him." The Lord is good to those who wait for him. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. On the surface, there was a heavy stream, a flood of grief in his life. His faith was sorely tested. But he looked to the unseen reality beyond this fallen world and rejoiced. There are times... Brothers and sisters, when grief will flood your soul because of the difficulties of life in this fallen, broken world, and your faith will be tested. Look with me at the end of verse 6. Peter says, You have been grieved by various trials. The word various is the same word that is used in chapter 4, verse 10, and can be translated multicolored or many-colored. These believers were grieved by multicolored, that is, diverse or various trials. Now, we don't know all the different kinds of trials that they were faced with. We do know from chapter 2, verse 12, that they were being spoken against as evildoers. In verses 19 through 20 of chapter 2, it says that they were suffering unjustly, Chapter 3, verse 9 says that they were dealt with in an evil way, and they were being insulted. Chapter 4, verse 14, they were reproached for the name of Christ. Peter doesn't describe all the details, but we know that their faith was tested in various ways. This was around the time when Nero really began his full-scale attack on the church. And so some of them, they may have undergone severe physical torture. Others may have escaped the torture, but were despised and insulted in their own local communities. You see, each person has his or her own particular tests that the Lord places upon them. What one person experiences may be completely different from another. Abraham's faith was tested In a very unusual way, God came to him and told him to take his only son, Isaac, the one in whom all the covenant promises of God were bound up. He had to take him and sacrifice him to the Lord. Job's faith was tested in that all his possessions were taken from him, his children died, his wife turned on him, and his own body was afflicted. Israel's faith was tested in many different ways in the wilderness. Also, the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 describes many forms of tested faith. Some were mocked and scourged. Some were chained and imprisoned. Some were stoned, or sawn in two, and slain with a sword. Some wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. You can see God's people in the history of the church have often experienced trials through which their faith was tested. And these trials continue in the church today. It could be through persecution, but it could also be through relational struggles or sickness or death in the family, becoming a widow or widower, losing a child. It could be through the loss of a job or a serious accident on the road or at work. Trials are multicolored, they come in various forms. Brothers and sisters, what are the ways in which your faith is being tested? What are some of the things that are weighing heavily on your shoulders at this very moment? Well, I hope we can be encouraged as we consider question three: why is our faith tested? Why is our faith tested? It helps us tremendously if we understand and believe that trials serve a purpose. Notice in the middle of verse 6 that Peter says, If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, if God deems it necessary. God does not test his people without a reason. We may not always fully understand the reason, but we do know that God has a purpose for everything that he does in the lives of his children. In verse 7, Peter shows us some of the divine purposes behind the grief that is experienced through trials. Look at verse 7. What's the purpose? That the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Why does God place trials in your life? To burn away the impurities, and finally, to prove that your faith is genuine. To illustrate his point, Peter used an effective analogy, which would have been very familiar to his readers. The analogy is that of a goldsmith who purifies gold. In this analogy, the fire symbolizes the trials of the believer The gold symbolizes our faith, and the goldsmith is God Himself. The gold must pass through the fire in order to be purified and refined. The fire, rather than damaging the pure metal, would burn away impurities. Once the gold emerges from the refiner's fire, it is counted as pure and genuine. Now congregation, Peter is arguing from the lesser to the greater. He is saying if we take gold, which is nothing more than a corruptible, perishable metal, if we take gold and think of it, think of such value that we prove it through the fire so that it will become even more valuable, should it surprise us that God tests the faith of his children, which is very precious in his sight? Even though gold has for centuries been understood as the most precious and lasting of material possessions, proven faith is much more precious than gold, and therefore, by implication, better than any other material possession. Even gold is perishable. But the person who has proven faith will receive a lasting reward. In the refining process, the fire is not intended to destroy the gold. It is intended to improve its quality by removing that which is worthless. And so it is with trials in your life. God has no intention of destroying your faith, He intends to strengthen it by removing the impurities. Maybe you're trusting too much in yourself. Maybe you're showing affection to false gods. Maybe you're trusting your money, business, or your position. Maybe you have a fair bit of dirt mingled with the gold of your faith. Those impurities in your faith will hinder you in your service to God and in your worship. Therefore, God sometimes refines your faith with the fires of distress. The goal is not to hurt you. But to make your faith purer and to make you more dependent on Him instead of on things, people, or position, He wants you to find your ultimate confidence and joy in Him. Listen to the words of 2 Corinthians 1, verse 8 through 9. The Apostle Paul said, We were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. That's the refiner's fire. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves. And now notice the purpose. In order that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. That's the pure gold. That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. It was not God's intent to hurt Paul, but to refine his faith and that's his design in your life as well. If your faith was never tested, you would never know what it is made of, whether it is genuine gold or not. And therefore, congregation, it is for our own benefit that God tests our faith. As we pass through trials, we become more confident that our faith is not like the faith described in Luke 8, verse 13. Luke 8 records the parable of the sower. Jesus said that the seed which fell on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these, having no root, believe for a while. And in time of testing, they fall away. When their faith was tested, it was proven not to be genuine. There was nothing left when it came through the refining fire, it wasn't true gold. In contrast to that, consider Abraham. Without hesitation, he obeyed the word of God. He was about to plunge the knife into his son when God stopped him and said, Now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. Abraham's faith passed through the refining fire and was confirmed as genuine gold gold. So, congregation, even though it goes against our nature, there is a sense in which we can and should welcome tests and trials in our lives. Perhaps you say, now, wait a minute, I can't welcome tests and trials into my life? Well, listen again to the spirit inspired words of James. My brothers, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, or steadfastness. Listen to the, likewise, listen to the words of Paul. We glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope, and hope does not disappoint. Do you rejoice in tests and trials? knowing that he has designed them for your good. People of God, soon the final results of the tests will be completely known. They will be known, says Peter at the end of verse 7, at the revelation or appearing or unveiling of Jesus Christ. Then when it is revealed, the secrets of all hearts will be revealed. And when Jesus returns, the genuineness of your faith will result in praise, honor, and glory. That is the ultimate purpose for which faith is tested. That's the result of God's refining. The text does not tell us if the praise, honor, and glory is what we give to God, or what God gives to us on the last day. While both are true, the context here seems to favor the latter. Praise, honor, and glory which God gives to His people. In the end, if your faith is found to be genuine, you will be praised. Well done, good and faithful servant. You will be honored and you will receive glory. That is, you will be made like Christ. So, congregation trials are valuable. They show us what our faith is really made of, and they produce in us the joy that someday, by His grace, we will receive praise, honor, and glory. He will give you the unfading crown of glory. Can you look back on your life and see that trials have been burning those impurities away? Can you see that you are being changed from glory to glory? Those refining fires can be so painful, but they are so very necessary in our lives. As we experience life's trials, we do not curse the God of heaven and earth, but instead, like Job, we worship. We must look to Christ by faith. It is our love for him that should drive us on in the struggle. What does Peter say of his readers in verse 8? He says that even though they have not seen Jesus, they love him. Even though they have not seen him, they believe and trust in him. That is true faith, believing in that which is not seen. Can that be said of you? Can you say that even though you have not seen him, you love him? Even though you have not seen him, you trust him? Peter himself, the writer of this epistle, had seen the Lord. He walked with him and witnessed his miracles. He had seen Jesus heal his mother-in-law. He was pulled out of the water by Jesus as he was sinking. He had seen Jesus in the court of the high priest. He had seen Jesus on the cross. He had also seen Jesus resurrected. And he heard the words of Jesus, Feed my sheep. Peter had seen Jesus and he loved him. These readers had not seen him, and yet they also loved him. They had come to love him through the word. They were living by faith, not by sight. Jesus had said to Thomas, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Brothers and sisters, no doubt some of you have been through or are in the middle of very difficult trials. Are they bringing you closer to the one whom you have not seen? Have you ever had the privilege of observing that process in some of your fellow church members? How through pain they have been drawn closer to Jesus Christ? Like Paul, they are not trusting in themselves, but in God who raises the dead. As you observe them, you can see genuine gold. And that gold is an encouragement to you and to the rest of the church family. They are being used by God through their trials to strengthen all of us. And so I want to encourage you today with Peter's words in verse 8b. Rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. The word inexpressible in verse 8 contains the sense of a divine mystery exceeding the powers of of speech and thought. Even though you have not seen him, you can already now, through faith, know the joy that you will experience when you do see him. The joy that we can have is inexpressible because it defies outward circumstances and is rooted in the realm that is beyond the physical. Our joy is also filled with glory. The word glory carries the idea of being endowed with glory from above. Our joy is full of divine glory. It isn't human joy. It is supernatural endowment from above. It has been infused with heavenly glory. Joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory is really the joy of heaven before heaven, experienced now in fellowship with the unseen Christ. Dear brothers and sisters, let us bear in mind that the pain of our earthly trials is only temporary temporary. Notice what Peter says in verse 6. He tells us that the grief which comes through various trials is what? For a little while. For a little while. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4 that our light affliction is but for a moment. All your tears, worries, and troubles are but for a moment. They will only last until we receive the outcome of our faith, until by grace we receive the prize. What is the prize? What is the outcome of our faith? Verse 9, the salvation of our souls. In principle, salvation already belongs to us as believers. We have been saved, but we will only take full possession of that when we are with Christ in eternity. Then joy and grief will no longer be able to coexist. Revelation 21 says God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away people of God how are you responding to the tests and trials in your life Is the refiner's fire burning away the impurities and revealing true gold? When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. James says Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Do you love him? If so, the crown of life will be yours. Soon you will pass from the refiner's fire into everlasting glory. Praise God for the gift of genuine faith. And if you're with us today, but the sorrows of life have made you angry and bitter with God, If they are driving you away from him, I want to remind you that the greatest of all sorrows and the greatest of all afflictions and trials was endured by our Lord Jesus on Calvary's cross. Never was there such pain. He bore those sorrows and endured those afflictions so that you can have eternal freedom. Yes, there are trials in this life, but at God's right hand are pleasures forevermore. Don't reject him. Don't wave your fist in his face. Rather, trust the Savior. Embrace his gracious provision and bow before him in worship. The hymn that we will sing in a moment was written by someone who experienced a life of trials. Edith Cherry was disabled from the age of 16 months by poliomyelitis and had to walk with crutches. Her only sister died at age four, when Edith was just six. Edith suffered two strokes in her early years, and a third stroke at age 25, which ultimately took her life. But in the short life she had, God gave her a gift for artwork and poetry, which she used for his glory. Two years before her death, she penned the hymn, We Rest on Thee. And in stanza three, she wrote these words which which speak a little of her life experience. We go in faith, our own great weakness feeling, and needing more each day thy grace to know. Yet from our hearts, a song of triumph pealing, we rest on thee, and in thy name we go. May this be our confession today, that Even in our trials and weakness, we go on in faith, resting on Christ, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God.